We are marching through the first couple of chapters of Luke as we look at the Advent story, the coming of our Lord. Uh, Chris is out of town today. He is uh, taking some time off with his family in St. Louis. and um, so The baton is passed to me, and I look forward to, to bringing the word this morning. From Luke chapter 1, we'll begin reading in verse 57. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child. And they would have called him Zechariah after his father, but his mother answered, No, he should be called John. And they said to her, Well, none of your relatives is called by that, this name. And, and they made signs to his father inquiring what he wanted him to be called. You remember Zechariah had lost his voice in the, the temple when uh, he kind of gave some pushback to the angel. And Zechariah asked for a writing tablet and wrote, No, his name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was open and his tongue loosed and he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors and all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea and all who heard them laid them up in their hearts saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people, and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God." whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. Let's pray together. Our Lord God, we pray that your spirit would come now to make clear what is somewhat vague to us, not because you have misspoken, not because uh, there is nothing clear about the gospel, but because there's something very unclear in our hearts and minds. There's a vagueness as we approach your word. And so we beg that you would send your spirit to bring clarity and understanding, eyes to see and ears to hear the truth of Jesus Christ. Father, I pray for those that oppose your gospel this morning in this place, that you would argue with them by your Spirit, that you would show them that you are present, that you will show them that you know their thoughts, and that, Father, you would speak very clear to them by your word this morning. And I pray for your people, O God. We believe, but help us in our unbelief. We need your Spirit to come. And we need your Spirit to do the work that only He can do in our hearts. Oh, Father, I cannot preach this message in a way that will reach the hearts of anyone's. Maybe minds, but not hearts. 
And so, Father, we pray that Your Spirit would apply Your Word to our hearts, that You would bring about repentance. Show us our sin, O God. But I pray, O God, that You would also bring faith where there is repentance and that there would be great hope and great confidence in Jesus Christ and the great salvation He brings. O Father, we are not about a show here this morning. We are about listening to You. So would You come and speak through Your Word, by Your Spirit, We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Nelson Mandela, he died on December 5th, and uh, the world showed up. Uh, The world showed up. I think we had three or four of our presidents, uh, Barack Obama, President President Obama, President Bush, uh, uh, President Clinton, I think maybe even uh, Carter showed up to, to grieve and mourn and be there. We heard some of the news uh, channels describing him as the prisoner-turned-president who reconciled South Africa after the end of apartheid. Bill Clinton said he proved that there is freedom in forgiving, that a big heart is better than a closed mind. Uh, Many in the news media hailed him as a man of forgiveness because after 27 years at the hands of his captors, he extended forgiveness. He showed real forgiveness. He could have come out and could have led a civil war in South Africa, but instead he fought for peace. How did he do it? By forgiving those that mistreated him. By forgiving those that put him in jail, separating him from his family, and depriving him of of privileges for 27 years. He came out and he preached a message of forgiveness and he modeled it. And because of that, the world showed up. And what's fascinating about that to me is it's really to the extent that he exhibited the, the very essence of Christ to the world that the world listened up and bowed down. He got respect from the world because Mandela imaged the very core of who Jesus is, namely forgiveness. I think of Pope Francis, who this week was declared Time Magazine's Person of the Year. And, and you, you read about Francis's life, and it's really captivating. Uh, one of the MSNBC uh, reporters talked about just how he had left the Catholic Church as, as a freshman at Brown University, but how now he was re-engaging with his Catholic faith. Why? Because Pope Francis has come in and, and changed all the theology of the church, that, that he's made the, the conservative uh, mainline teaching of the Catholic Church liberal? No. He said he still teaches against homosexuality. He, he still teaches against... Um, uh, women in, in, in the priesthood. He still teaches against these things, but then he said this. He said, but he's not a jerk about it. The Washington Post published an article, and it said this. It said, like Pope Francis, you will love Jesus. Isn't that amazing? You see, he came in and he refused to live in, in the, uh, the traditional Pope quarters. He, he lives out back in the servants' quarters. He refused to, uh, to, to ride in the Pope Mobile, and he has a used car. He rides the subway and the train. He's among the common people. He has shown in public embracing the disenfranchised and the overlooked and the hurting. He won't wear those red slippers. I don't know what he does wear. Maybe some Air Jordans or something. I have no idea what he wears. But, but he doesn't wear those red slippers. 
And what he is doing is he's showing the world Jesus. He's showing humility. And the world stands back and applauds him. And as we come to our text this morning, we have to ask the question, who in the world is this John the Baptist? He's such a mysterious character. Who is this guy? He seemed to have one purpose, and that was to come and say, Hey guys, Jesus is coming. Uh, Hey guys, the Messiah is on His way. And guess what He's coming to do? He's coming to, to bring forgiveness of sins. He's coming to redeem the world. I mean, who is this John the Baptist? He, he's really nobody. He, he's a child of very common parents, Zachariah and Elizabeth. There's nothing really special about Zachariah and Elizabeth. We would never have known their names. They were just, uh, Zachariah was one priest among many. And yet he had a child named John the Baptist. And Jesus said he was great. In Matthew 11, 11, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there's arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. What an endorsement. What an endorsement. Jesus said, there is no one greater. I have no one greater than John the Baptist. So what made John the Baptist so incredibly special? Well, Jesus calls him the greatest, but then he ends his, uh, the phrase with this. He says, yet, in the same breath, yet, he's, I have no one greater than John the Baptist, yet, the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. You see, the world takes people with extraordinary special giftedness, intellect, or looks, and exalts them high to make the rest of us feel very inferior. But in Jesus' economy, He takes someone extremely normal. In fact, He was a little weird, if you, if you can go with me on here. I mean, the guy dressed in like camel skin and ate locusts. As we're going to see in a little while, He didn't drink wine. He, he was kind of an oddball in the culture. And yet, Jesus says He's great, but at the same time, He's no greater than anyone in the kingdom of God. Why? Because what John was called to and what made him great is what you and I are called to so that we may be great as well. And you know what it is? It's to make much of Jesus. Do you know why John the Baptist it was a great man? It's because he lived his life to make the name of Jesus the most popular name in the land. And not only that, He said, may Jesus increase and may I decrease. What is so powerful about this text in in my mind is this. John the Baptist didn't just preach Jesus' sufficiency. He preached his own inadequacy. He said, may Jesus increase and may I decrease. May His name and His fame grow wide and, and long, but may nobody remember me. And friends, that's what we need today because that's what we're called to. But here's what our flesh does, and here's what it looks like in the church so often. We make... We make much of ourselves by making something of Jesus. This is what I smell in Christianity today. Why? Because we're all sinful. Is we want to use Jesus to make a name for ourselves. 
We want to use His teaching to, to, to draw attention to us and to maybe our community and maybe our church or our denomination or our network or whatever it is. We make something of Jesus so that we can make much of ourselves. We use Him. And friends, the gospel is completely counter to that. And I want to, I want to challenge you this morning with this reality. You can't know freedom. You can't know life and joy unless you were sold out to, to this reality that you have been created to make much of Jesus and little of yourself. And so how in the world can we do that? I think it's right here in this text. And the first thing that we need to understand is that making much of Jesus and little of ourselves has to happen in community. We can't do it alone. We need a community that is devoted to making much of Jesus. Where our very core principle is that we make much of Jesus and we make little of ourselves. Let's unpack that a little bit. I don't think I'll ever forget my first day in New Testament class in seminary. And folks, that was a long time ago. Uh, that was back in like 1980, what, 6 or 7? Rachel, I think something like that. There we go, 8. There we go. <clears throat> Knox Chamlin, one of my favorite, became one of the men that I, I love the most. He's now gone to be with Jesus. But he stood before our class, uh, probably 80, 90 people. And he said, I want to see a show of hands of how many are here against the express um, um, will of your parents. And I thought, I was shocked by that question. I, I started raising my hand. I was like, surely I'm the only one. 90% of that class was in that class against one of their parents' wishes, or they knew their parents had wished they'd gone on to be something else. You know? <laughs> and, and, and what Knox Chamberlain, I'll never forget what he said, he said this, he said, you know, parents are so excited when other parents' children are called to the ministry. I said, boy, you're right. And he is hitting the idolatry of our culture. And it's exposed here in this text. If you read these verses, um, you see in verse um, 57, where is it? Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And you see throughout this text that in verse 65, and fear came on their, on their neighbors. And all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts saying, what then will this child be? See, there was anticipation that this child that God had given Zechariah and Elizabeth because her womb was barren and because they were old, that this miracle had happened and, and God was going to use this child in a great way to proclaim the fame of the Messiah. That something was coming. It wasn't the fact that John was going to grow up and be a lawyer or a doctor or a professor or some respectable kind of person. But he was going to grow up and be used of God to be a mouthpiece for God, to proclaim the good news of God. And Zechariah and Elizabeth and their community rejoiced over this. Friends, parents in our day, and it's such a struggle in all of our hearts, we want our children to do well financially. We want our children to be protected from the harms of the world. And we protect them. We, we wrap them up. 
We want our children to be the smartest and the best and the beautiful so they only get praise and not condemnation and not scorn and not be isolated. And yet Zechariah and Elizabeth and, and their community understood what it was to be isolated. They understood what it was to be scorned by the culture. They understood what it was to be looked down upon by those in power and by the cool of the day. Because they live separate lives apart from the culture in the world but not of the world. And you see it right here. And it's so important that we understand why we want our children to be protected and not used for the glory of God, first and foremost. Why we want them to be successful and go to church, of course. But why the thing that's really driving our our, our value system is we want our children to be successful and safe and secure and powerful and beautiful and talented because we believe that this world can bring life and satisfaction more than God. I mean, there's no other reason that we are pushing our children to this and not to Jesus primarily than the fact that we value what this world offers more than what God promises to offer our children. Zechariah and Elizabeth and their community of friends saw God and His covenant keeping faithfulness as the source of real life, satisfaction, and joy. Do we? Do you know what we're doing here? This is so important, what we are doing here as a church body. What just happened when we received members? is we, are, we have a covenant community. We are saying we are like a bunch of people married to one another and married to God. We're saying, I'm going to love you even and especially when you don't need it. And I'm not going anywhere. Do you know why? Because none of us can exist well outside of that. I mean, look at this community. Look at what they, what they valued. Zechariah and Elizabeth brought uh, John the Baptist to be circumcised on the eighth day. Why did they do this? Because God commanded it. I mean, right there, when the kid is eight days old, notice what they're doing. They're putting the sign of of, of covenant promise upon him. And you know, at that point, they viewed him as a member of the church. Now, that's weird. You said, oh, here we go. Richard's going to bash us over the head with infant baptism. Well, I really could at this point, but I'm not going to. What I'm going to say, though, is this. I'm going to make this distinction. They didn't wait for John the Baptist to grow up and make some public decision. They said, we're making the decision for you. As for me and my house, we serve the Lord. And you are the Lord's. And where did they get that? They got it back from Genesis when God commanded Abraham to put the sign of church membership on their eight-day-old babies so that, so that the Christian life was not about what we do for God, but what God does for us. He said, those children, your children are mine. And you entrust them to me. And you even put the sign of membership of the church on them. And you raise them as if they love Jesus. You teach them my word. You teach them how to be faithful. You discipline them as if they are mine. As if they're Christians. You don't wait on something to happen. You, you tell them what their identity is. You don't let them create it for themselves. Why? Because my identity is reality. 
Church, do you hear me? God's identity for us is reality. And there is no better reality. It doesn't matter what the world brings them. God's reality is what is true and good. We can't assume that it was just easier back then to be a little weird. To be kind of a, the outcast in culture. Uh, we can't assume that. Why? Because at the very heart of the very first temptation was this. Did God really say, Eve? I mean, are you, you know you're uncool if you, if you believe the things that God says. I mean, the very first temptation, the way that the devil got Eve to eat the forbidden fruit was to say, you won't be cool unless you do what God tells you not to do. The very first sin. And so every culture, every culture, God's people have to exist in in the world and yet not be of the world and yet risk the reality of being the outcast of the culture and to be uncool. And that's why we need each other. Because what we're doing here in the church is we are creating an all-new community. Defining what is cool by by looking at God's Word and saying, we will obey the Lord. That's what we're doing here. And you raise your children in this context. And it's not a legalistic kind of thing. It is a gospel-driven kind of thing. It's a reality where adults stand before us and we confess our sins. We tell our children our sins. And then we lead them and show them what repentance looks like. We love people that, that, that we're, the world hates. We, we bring mercy and, and, and compassion And we show our children how to love the unlovely and how to live for somebody that they really want to hate. That's what the community of God is supposed to do. We are supposed to be a counterculture. And the question is, are we? Are we being a counterculture? This is what I see most churches trying to do. This is how I think most churches receive this message. Okay, Richard, or okay, elders, or or the people that you respect in the church, all right, tell us how to live and we'll go live that way. Well, this is what it looks like. You have to live in this neighborhood or you're really not a Christian. You have to give up this, or you have to give up that, or you have to go to that school, or you have to dress this way, or you have to make this much money. No! We are not defining what we are called to and then imposing it on other people. But we individually are listening to God and we live in a community where we are to encourage each other to listen to God and obey God, even and especially if it's different from how He's speaking to us. Isn't that beautiful? We don't have to educate our children at the same school. We don't have to dress the same way. We don't have to live in the same neighborhoods. We don't have to do the same job. We can be different if we are submitting our hearts and minds to what God has called us to be. Because it's we, the church, as we go out into the world, that we mingle with the wealthy and the poor, (laughs) with the broken and those who know that they're broken and those that don't know they're broken. That we go in the high places and the low places that we're everywhere and we're ministering the gospel of Jesus coming here in this community and encouraging each other to go out and do just that. We need Christian community. And dear friends, that is what we must be. 
But how do we stand alone in the world? And how do we identify with Jesus more than anything? More than what our parents want us to do? More than what uh, maybe our neighbor wants us to do in the church? How do we truly live an ongoing faith in the world? We do it by really believing the gospel's uh, message of, uh, of salvation. Making much of Jesus demands Christian, Christian community, but making much of Jesus is rooted in ongoing faith in the salvation He brings. You see the excitement of Zechariah, and it's over not what John the Baptist would do only, but his declaration of something greater, and that is what Jesus Christ would do. Dear friends, has the gospel so captivated your heart today that you want to make much of Him? Something has captivated your heart. I was reading the story of Urban Meyer. Now, I'm not a Florida Gator fan, but, you know, I was curious because, I mean, the man won two national championships. And I was reading his story, and um, it all goes back, really, to his dad. His dad is a very demanding, um, has been a very demanding father. And uh, Urban Meyer, you may not know this, uh, interesting tidbit of information, but uh, he was drafted by the Atlanta Braves to play Major League Baseball out of high school. Like as a senior in high school, he was drafted to play for the Braves, and he signed with them. And he started immediately playing minor league ball, and he hated it, and he was horrible at it. And he had this realization that this is not for me and I need to get out of this. So he called his dad and told his dad. You know what his dad told him? He said, son, you do that. Don't bother coming home. Call your mom at Christmas, but you're not welcome in this house again. Ooh. Well, he he finished uh, minor league baseball at least that year and eventually got out of it. And he went on to win two national championships. But that's not the whole story. In 2009, after his winning streak came to an end, a few hours later, his family found him in his study, passed out in his office, unable to speak. He'd had a nervous breakdown. He literally couldn't function. The weight of the law, the weight of success. He he was quoted as saying in an interview that success was horrible because you had to maintain it. Anything less than winning another national championship was unthinkable when that was his law. And he, he drowned underneath it. And he couldn't function. And as I read that story, I thought, you know what? That's how most people in the church today view the God of heaven and earth. How Urban Meyer's father was is how we view God. He says, here's your one shot. Here's your one opportunity. Now go get it. Oh, you didn't make it? Don't come home tonight. You failed? You're not good enough. You can't succeed? You better keep trying if you want my love, if you want my acceptance. And that's why people come in the church and go out of the church. Why? Because they don't hear the gospel? No. Because they don't believe the gospel alone. Because the gospel is not the thing in their lives. You see what Zechariah is doing here. He is praising God for this message being delivered from the hand of our enemies so that we might serve Him, how? Without fear. In holiness and righteousness. How can we serve God without fear? Are you kidding me? I mean, how can we live seeing God as anything but an ogre? This is how. 
And the child, you child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare His ways, to give knowledge of salvation to His people. Not to bring the law to His people and say, let's stack a few more up. But to show how Jesus would come to bring salvation. And what is salvation? The forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God. And so Zechariah was overwhelmed at the reality that his boy would be used of God to preach the forgiveness of sins and the tender mercies of God. Isn't that beautiful? The gospel is so counterintuitive, and yet it's the best. You see, it's the best message. It is the, it is the power of God for this reason. We all understand this, this Bible verse. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We get that. I mean, there's not a person that has ever lived that doesn't get that. We've sinned and we don't deserve grace. And we go, or we don't, we don't, live up to God's standards. So we go in one of two directions. One is to the law to prove that we can do it. And the other is to a life of absolute irresponsibility and and, and pleasure. Because we know we can't. And yet the gospel is right here. And it tells both to lay their doing and their lack of doing down and come to Jesus. Because Jesus came to live under the law for us. And then He went to the cross and He took all of our sin and He was condemned by the Father. And when we simply believe that, something happens. And what happens, and actually it happens before we believe it, because even our faith is a gift. And what happens is this. God takes all of our guilt and condemnation and He says paid for because of Jesus. And then He takes all of Jesus' obedience and His perfect life and He says, now I credit it to your account and this is how I love you. I love you to the extent that I love my own Son, Jesus. And dear friends, that will redeem your soul when you believe it. And that's what Zachariah and Elizabeth were rejoicing over. And yet the church, it's interesting, the church doesn't believe it. Listen to this quote out of One Way Love. Christians often speak about grace with a thousand qualifications. They add all sorts of buts and breaks to it. Listen for them. Our greatest concern, it seems, is that people will take advantage of grace and use it as a justification to live licentiously. Sadly, while attacks on morality typically come from outside the church, attacks on grace typically come from inside the church. The reason is because somewhere along the way, we've come to believe that this whole enterprise is about behavioral modification. And grace just doesn't possess the teeth to scare us into changing. So we end up hearing more about what grace isn't than we do about what grace is. Some would even say that, yes, grace, but originated with the devil in the Garden of Eden. That the biggest lie Satan wants the church to believe is that grace is dangerous and therefore needs to be kept in check. Sadly, the church has believed this lie all too well. 
where disobedience flourishes, it is not the fault of too much grace, but rather of our failure to grasp the depth of God's one-way love for us in the midst of our transgressions and greed. Did you hear that? It is not where disobedience flourishes. It is not the fault of too much grace, but rather of our failure to grasp the depth of God's grace for us in the midst of our transgressions and greed. Dear friends, do you understand what you need this morning more than anything? It's not to be beat up by the law. Why? Because the law is too harsh? No, because the law is true. And you know it. It's written on your heart. That's why you can't break God's law and get away with it. It is why guilt is at the very center of who you are. You get that. Whether you're willing to admit it today or not, you do get it. If you would be honest with yourself, you cannot escape guilt because nobody has. But you can be freed from guilt through the gospel of Jesus Christ. You have the power to live without that guilt as you lean deep into the finished work of a Savior who took on your flesh and lived a life that you could not live. And dear friends, that's where we can go with our guilt. And when we understand that, and when we are preaching that to ourselves, and when we're believing that, then and only then do we see real obedience. Making much of Jesus means to make much of His gospel. But thirdly, making much of Jesus is that for which we were made. You know, here's what I wrestled with this week and what I wrestle with every time I preach something like this. You're going to hear this message and you're going to say, I can't do it. I mean, that sounds good for somebody else to make much of Jesus. But that's just not me. I mean, I just can't see myself, you know, selling out to Jesus or whatever those categories are, those phrases are that we all use. But but let me bring it down to your front door. One second to go. One second on the clock. Alabama has the ball. The score is tied. Alabama sets up, snaps the ball to kick an unbelievably long field goal. It falls short. It drifts to the right, right into the hands of Chris Davis. Not our own Chris Davis, but he wishes. But Chris Davis on on the Auburn football team. Chris Davis gets it. He, I mean, he just is like a, you know, a a greyhound out of the gate. I mean, he is going right down the center of the field. Then he cuts left and he goes to the sideline. He eludes one tackle and he's gone and the SEC or the, the, the Auburn War Eagle fans are still going crazy. We know how to make much of something, folks. We know how to teach our children how to make much of something. We, we look at our alma mater and we say, oh, it's okay. I mean, you don't go to a miss. That, that's fine. Unless you want your college paid for, you know. <laughs> you know, you don't want to go hunt or fish with me, or you don't want to do this, or you don't want that's fine, but you know, as long as you want to be in this family, as for me and my house, we serve Auburn, you know, or we serve Arkansas, or whatever it is. And then don't tell me that you don't know how to make much of something that is unpopular. University of Memphis football fans or <laughs> Grizzly fans these days. So funny, I was preaching, I was talking to somebody uh, that was here from L.A., and, and they said, man, if you, you know, uh, if you preached in L.A., I mean, you could, all this grizzly stuff. I mean, I understood what you were saying, you know, but I just kind of thought about the Clippers when you were talking about the Grizzlies, and then I got it, you know. 
We know how to make much of something, and we know how to impose that on our children. Do you know why I like to get up at four in the morning on the coldest day of the winter and put on waders and break ice to stand in water and kill birds coming in to decoys? Because my dad taught me to do that. Dear friends, you know how to make much of something. The only question is, is Jesus that something? Has He captivated your heart and soul to that point? And I'm not saying you have to give up football. As a matter of fact, here's what happens. When, when Zachariah and Elizabeth, they weren't just excited that they had a child. They were excited that they had a child because that child showed them this living reality of God's goodness. As, as Zechariah held this little baby, he was thinking about all those horrible days when his wife would come home wagging her head, crying, talking about how the other women had given, them, given her that look at the well that day or in the marketplace. He had thought about all those, those years of, of his wife's womb being barren and him wondering if, if maybe he had done something that displeased God. And he's holding this baby, and yes, he's excited about the baby, but the baby doesn't replace Jesus. The baby gives him a living, breathing um, something that he can experience more of Jesus. And do you understand, Auburn fans, when you were rejoicing as, as a believer at the end of that game, and you're still rejoicing that that is just a minuscule taste of what it's going to be like when the King of Kings and Lord of Lords comes back for His children and the victory is done. And all of this time of waiting, I haven't been married, or I've been married and it's been hard, or, or, or my child died, or whatever, or financially I just hadn't gotten where I wanted to go, or I've gotten where I wanted to go and it just wasn't fulfilling, or whatever it is, whatever... We, Burden we're all bearing. When Jesus comes back, it ends. And there's a new heaven and a new earth, and we get to rejoice in the reality of this new heaven and this new earth forever. And you think celebrating a victory of a football team was something. When Jesus is everything to you, when He's everything to you, that celebration is something else. And it's worth sacrificing stuff over. And it's worth living differently. I saw Mark Driscoll. He put forth a, a new book. And he's quoting an article that was in, I think, the New York Times. And it shows that the overwhelming majority of our culture, it, I think it's increased in the last 10 years by like 170% in terms of you know, the view of living together before marriage and living together now. Uh, the, the whole lot, there were so many things that, that, that he was showing, and I said, you know, the church is very, very similar to that. Why? Because we're unwilling to sacrifice what we love more for what we should love more. Do you understand what happened to John the Baptist? His story is not, doesn't end real well, it's kind of ugly. The dude gets thrown in prison and gets his head chopped off. And guess what? The Bible doesn't tell us how Zachariah and Elizabeth responded. But I can tell you how they responded. Did they mourn? Absolutely. Did they grieve? Absolutely. Were they ever the same? Probably not. But they didn't... You see what? They survived that with their faith intact. Why? Because John the Baptist, their son, wasn't everything to them. He was something wonderful. But Jesus was everything to them. 
So what is it in your life that if you lost or if you don't get that you're going to hate God for? Let me tell you something. You've yet to get to the point where Jesus is everything to you. Let Him be everything to you today. Say, God, I'm not there, but I want to be there. Talk honestly to God. Process with somebody here. Be in this community and say, that's just not me, and I can't imagine it being me, but there's something in me kind of... I kind of like to talk about that. Dear friends, this is the place to do it. Is Jesus everything to you today? No, He's not everything to any of us. But do you want Him to be everything to you? And do you see that glimmer of hope that one day, someday He will be and everything will be made right again? I hope you do. We're going to do something from this point forward at Downtown Church. We're declaring this land up here, wherever up here is, um, and wherever we're worshiping in the future, is sacred ground right after the sermon, and right after the benediction. Um, as the church grows, we want to be able to minister to you individually and not just corporately. Um, and so every time after the service, our, our uh, pastors and our elders and our community group leaders will, will be up here to pray with you and to, to counsel with you and talk with you about whatever you want to talk about um, after the service. So if you want prayer... If you want us to just to be in on something in your life and praying for you, then we want to meet you up here after the benediction um, at the end. And if you don't come up here, totally fine. If you would just exit out and, and feel free to talk. Um, it's just going to be a very, very real time up here for um, those of us that will be talking and, uh, and praying with one another. Um, but this is just one more way that we're kind of another layer that we want to throw into the mix of, of caring for our church family. Um, and so this morning that's going to happen after the benediction and I'll invite you up, but I wanted to kind of prep you and give you a, give you a heads up. Let's pray together as we prepare to bring God uh, His tithes, what He commands, and then our offerings even above that. Lord Jesus, thank You for the Gospel. Thank You for this true account of Zachariah and Elizabeth, and thank You for their faithfulness of uh, blessing You um, with thanksgiving in response to the, the son that you gave them. Um, but thank you, O oh God, that they could see through their son to a greater son, your son, that you would send. And thank you, Father, for the covenant community around them that, uh, that was willing to be different, uh, willing to, uh, to stand out a little bit, and, and willing to even suffer for you and, and even give their own, like John. Um, and God, I just pray that you would make us more like that. Uh, may we fall in love with Jesus. May we make much of Him. I pray that something that was said this morning would connect with, with many people here. Um, and if so, God, we give you the glory. And we look forward to what you're going to do in us. Uh, receive these gifts now, Lord Jesus, and use them to further your kingdom and uh, to make the fame in the name of Jesus strong in this city and beyond. And we just pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.